What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching, and today is a great example of that. Today, I have two amazing coaches, two amazing friends on the podcast to do the second coaching roundtable. This is something that I have been uh, thinking about for a long time. It's something I've been trying to create for a long time, and it's something that I have always listened to from other people's podcasts. I talked about this briefly on the previous roundtable we did with uh, Austin Current and Steve Hall, which I'll link in the description. It was a really, really good podcast. These usually last a little bit longer, so be ready to listen, learn, take notes. There's a lot of information and a lot of practical information because, again, my whole goal with these roundtable podcasts, these coaching roundtables, is to keep it solely focused on coaching. Um, In my experience, from what I've taken away from so many of the roundtables out there, because there are a lot of amazing roundtables, people like Steve Hall, JPS, and a bunch of others who do these roundtables with coaches and or researchers, but more often than not, it's very specific to a... uh, exact topic. So example is the refeed roundtable, the diet break roundtable, the volume roundtable, you know what I mean? The training split roundtable, exercise selection roundtable. And we take one topic and we talk about it for one or two hours, which I think is very valuable. It puts a lot of context into a specific situation. Um, Another example is research roundtable. So they'll take one exact research study. So the volume study, for example, and then they just go in on it. The Matador study, for example, they just go in on it. And I think that's great, but sometimes just talking research doesn't allow people to listen, think, consider different variables, and then take applicable action steps, practical action steps away from the podcast and actually go use them in their own diet and or training, which is what my goal is with these. That's a long-winded answer for me saying I want to keep this practical for you. (laughs) But my goal with these roundtables is simple. Like let's take all this science. Let's take all these strategies. Let's take what we've learned throughout the years of coaching and let's share that information on a roundtable and discuss together and come to conclusions and see different opinions and ideas and strategies and methodologies in order to elicit change in our physique. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or hypertrophy, muscle growth, these podcasts are going to be very applicable to you and either your clients and or your own specific results. Um, So I'm really excited about this one, especially because uh, these are two guys that I've respected for a long time. Chris Barakat and William Grazione. Uh, Chris Barakat runs Competitive Breed. He is also a uh, professor at a college in, in Tampa, I believe, in Florida. Um, I should know that exactly because me and Chris talk every single week. In fact, he is my nutrition coach, which is very cool to have him on the podcast. He's somebody that I've known for a long time. We met way back at the Physique Summit in Missouri, uh, Cliff Wilson and John Gorman's event, Shit, 2015, maybe 2016. I mean, it was at least three or four years ago, but maybe even four to five years ago. Um, it was a long time ago. We met there. He uh, he was actually really, really cool dude to me because he's extremely smart. He was in the midst of growing. He was in the midst of getting into college, into his competitive bodybuilding career. Like he was really on a on a big growth spree when I met him and I had no idea who he was and I flew out to Missouri alone. He was there with all of his friends who he knew, but he was like, yo, come out to dinner with us, hang out with us. So I actually got to hang out with him, train with him, go to dinner with him for a few days, watch the event with him for a few days. It was a really, really cool experience. Got to know him and then years later I reached out to him and was like, hey, I just had surgery. I need your help. 
so he came on board, held me accountable. He's been helping me recomp, and we've seen an insane transformation in my body. I'm actually rebuilding muscle and losing fat, and now we're going to do a photo shoot here soon. So I'm really grateful to have him on the podcast because it's really cool to hear him expand further than he already does inside of our coaching. And as you guys know, I believe in coaching. I am a coach. All coaches should have coaches, um, and that applies to me as well. Uh, the next guest is actually his one of his really good friends, who is William Grazione, who owns Metabolic Evolution, another coaching company, of course. And uh, he is also in Florida, but he has been known for a long time for just putting amazing physiques on stage. The guy really knows what he's doing. He's really specific with what he does, and he applies the science, again, in an applicable way, just like myself and just like Chris Bearcat. I met Will not as long ago as Chris, but um, about a year or so ago at an event with Jason Phillips down in Arizona, I believe. Um, and we got to kick it for a couple days. And of course, when we linked up, we had a lot of similar mutual friends. So we hit it off right away. We had a lot of similar uh, in mutual ideologies, methods, strategies, coaching principles. And we just hit it off. And he's a really, really down to earth, really humble, uh, a really great guy, a father, a business owner, a passionate natural bodybuilder. And he's very smart. So the three of us collaborated. We created this coaching roundtable. This is the second one on the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. I'm really excited to dive into this because we cover a r lot of really really important topics, volume, protein, refeeds, the typical stuff that all people ask us questions on. And we really dive into the details of how to optimize your body with practical and sustainable methods. And we use a lot of case studies, which I think was really important is as we go through this, we actually bring up client examples. So you guys can hear us talk about a strategy and then dive into why and how it actually works. So before I run any further, let me just get to the few announcements I have for you guys today. First and foremost, if you are new to this podcast, you're probably overwhelmed already because I just spit out so much information about these guys, but I promise you're about to get uh, into an amazing episode. And if you want to go check out the top four episodes ranked by the listeners, you can scroll into the description. That is going to be Nutrition FAQ. I go through a ton of frequently asked questions. Training FAQ, same thing, very in-depth podcast on training. Then Nutritional Periodization, which is a topic I am very passionate about and something we put all of our clients through at Boom Boom Performance to get excellent results. And then last but not least, my personal journey into fitness and nutrition coaching. Also, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, guys. We drop three episodes per week, completely free, full of information, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And last but not least, I do offer a free ebook that covers all things nutrition. It's so valuable and it's completely free. There's literally no reason not to go grab it and learn as much as possible. That's called The Nutrition Hierarchy and it is in the description below. Guys, if you are familiar with this podcast or if you get through this podcast and you really do enjoy it, the best way for us to grow this podcast is not only leaving five-star rating and review. Yes, we do appreciate that and it does help, but more importantly, word of mouth. If you can share this with your friends, that's how we grow it and that's how we actually reach more people around the world to get more individuals better results completely free, just like you are right now. So please do me a huge favor, head over to Instagram, take a screenshot of this podcast and post it on your story. Tag myself at cody.boomboom, tag Will at William underscore Grazion, G-R-A-Z-I-O-N, and then go over and tag Chris at Christopher.Barakat, that's B-A-R-A-K-A-T. I'm going to link all of our Instagram handles in the show notes so you guys can see those because I know those names are kind of long, um, except mine, Boom Boom, is pretty easy to remember. But guys, go over to Instagram, tag us all. We want to thank you for listening to this podcast. We want to see what you took away from it, and we want to share it on our Instagram story so you, we can share your message with other people as well. 
Guys, thank you so much for listening to this long-ass intro. (laughs) I'm super excited for this long-ass podcast, but I promise, once again, there is so much value inside of this. This is the Coaching Roundtable Part 2 with Chris Barakat and Will Grazion. Guys, I'm excited about this. This is roundtable number two for the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. And I have two people who I personally know and I respect in the industry quite a bit. In fact, one of them actually does my training and nutrition. So Chris, shout out to Chris for being my coach. Um, Will, I've looked at your stuff for years now and we got the chance to meet, I believe it was in Arizona or was that in Florida? Arizona at Jason Phillips Mastermind event. Right. Yeah. And we hit it off and got to talk a lot. So really excited to have you guys on here because you guys are both really well versed in both training and nutrition. And that's what I'm really excited about because the goal with these roundtables is to take a coach's perspective of the research, of the science, of the evidence, everything we use, but kind of display it or relay the message in a very practical, applicable way for the everyday listener. Um, So before I go on any more rants about you two, like let's get into your intro. Will, we'll start with you. Can you give the listeners just kind of a story or a nutshell of who you are? Sure. Yeah, man. I will keep it as brief as possible. Uh, my name is William Grazione. Uh, I'm the owner of Metabolic Evolution Incorporated. I started uh, competition preparation coaching in 2010. Also earned my NGA pro card as a natural bodybuilder in 2010 and then earned my IFPA pro card as a natural bodybuilder in 2012. And since then, I've just been uh, really trying to go all in on my online nutrition and coaching business. I love it, man. Also a husband and a father of four. <laughs> and I believe you have uh, some exotic creatures at your house as well, don't you? Yeah, I do, man. <laughs> I have uh, about a six-foot boa constrictor. It's a red-tailed boa constrictor from uh, South America. Crazy. I have a probably about a three-foot Chinese water dragon. We have a ball python, and we have an iguana and a bearded dragon. That is, that's way more than I thought you were going to say, but I actually saw on Chris's story one time and I was like, man, what is that thing? That is crazy. That is too cool, man. I'm sure your kids love that. It's funny though, because my wife was like, I'll never get a snake. You're never getting a reptile. And then once she actually had an interaction with a reptile and my kids fell in love with them, now our house is full. (laughs) I love it, man. Chris, give us the intro. Sure, man. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me on, Cody. Uh, My name is Chris Barakat, guys. I am a coach and owner at Competitive Breed. Um, I started competing in 2011 in natural bodybuilding. I was only 19 years old at the time. And um, my interest for training and nutrition was there before that. I was always um, someone really enjoying physical activity. I, I uh, absolutely loved Kung Fu and martial arts as a kid. Um, fell in love with basketball in my teenage years and then just needed another competitive outlet and bodybuilding was the perfect fit. Um, so once I continued to dive deeper into training uh, for bodybuilding, I decided to completely shift my educational route. So I have my bachelor's degree in athletic training, and then I have my master's um, in exercise and nutritional sciences. And I currently teach as an adjunct professor at the University of Tampa. And I do uh, research here in the human performance lab, um, primarily on training, uh, a little bit on nutrition and this is what I love to do. I love it, man. This is going to be the perfect podcast for it. the things we're going to go into. And, and the first thing we're going to talk about is something I think I get asked about on almost every, we do a weekly Q and A and almost every time, a lot of times I skip the question cause I've touched on this so many times, but I get a question on volume all the time. And I think there's, there's different camps and it's funny because if you 
listen to people who are like tried and true legendary strength coaches, a lot of them are like in the low volume camp and they're like, no, that's just too stressful. Your body can't handle it. Just, just lift heavy, be intentful. And then there's the evidence-based crowd. That's like, you have to basically just keep driving volume up continuously as much as you can until you get to a point of no return. Um, and then there's a lot of people that kind of fall in the middle ground. And I think that's where we all lie if we're being completely honest but um chris since you were so excited about this exact topic i'm going to give you the question first but basically the the question is what are your opinions on the volume research that has been published in the last like one to two one to three years um is more really better and you can refer to any studies you want but i know that i've been sent literature quite a bit of times of like even some i believe it's like 40 to 45 sets per week of just like crazy amounts of volume um so my question is what are your opinions on it and how much of that is actually practical or applicable inside of somebody's training sure so in regards to volume um the thing that the research has missed was they have never taken into consideration how many sets per week per muscle group was that subject doing before they started the training study mm. okay so um, Schoenfeld just released his recent study where they did either nine sets per week, 27 sets per week, and I believe it was 54 or 45 sets per week. I always flip around the numbers, but it was basically a low volume group, a pretty freaking high volume group, and an extremely high volume group, okay? And uh, they basically found that the group producing the most amount of volume um, had the greatest amount of hypertrophy. And the reason for that is most likely because every subject in that group doing 45 sets per week was probably doing more work than they ever had. So it was a greater stimulus than they're used to. Now, if you take someone that does four sets per week and you have them do nine sets per week, that is more sets than they're previously used to. Therefore, they're probably going to grow. Um, we just conducted a study. It actually took us nine months to collect data. Um, we usually, we like to do studies in, in one semester, but this project was so large that it took us an entire school year to complete. And we just presented the data at the NSCA conference in Washington, DC. And our study was a bit different. So we had 12 sets per week, um, 18 sets per week, and 24 sets per week. What we did differently was we finally asked the subjects, how many sets are you currently doing before they started the study? Okay. Um, however, due to statistics and the way research needs to be ran, we still randomized what group they fell into because we just need to do research in that manner. The cool thing is when you look at all three groups, they all responded extremely similarly. There really isn't much difference between the three groups. However, when you look at the individual subjects, right, as individual data points, the subjects that grew the most and got the strongest were the subjects that added the most amount of sets per week, okay? So if a subject came in and they were doing 12 sets per week at baseline and we had them do 18, they grew, they got stronger if they were doing 15 sets per week and they ended up in the group doing um, 24 sets per week, they, they grew, they built muscle and they got stronger. So it really matters where they are at at baseline. It blows my mind that all of the other research would just take 30 subjects and say, okay, 10 of you are doing 10 sets, 10 of you are doing 20 sets, 10 of you are doing 30 sets without 
without taking into consideration what were they previously doing, right? Because I don't want to continue to ramble too long, but um, you know, if someone was doing 30 sets per week, and we saw this in our study, the subjects that were doing a lot of volume but ended up in a lower volume group, they lost size and they lost strength, which makes sense. So you, you can't take someone doing 30 sets per week and tell them, all right, we'll just do 10. That's all you need. It's like, no, they, they, their body has adapted to this amount and they can be more efficient with their volume. So they might be able to reduce how many sets they're doing, but then they would need to increase their intensity, their mind muscle connection, and just get more out of each set. But you can't just take someone doing super high volume and throw them into a low volume group and expect them to progress. They might, they might regress in that situation. I'm really excited that you did the study that way too, because that's always one of my questions is, is what was going on before. Um, before I pass the mic to you, Will, I guess my, my follow-up question to that is, especially for the listeners to hear, how long are most of these studies being done? And how long can you follow a ultra high volume program? Because is there any merit to say like, maybe you should make a dramatic jump, but only for X amount of weeks, because at some point you're overreaching and you need to kind of deload or all these studies long enough. I mean, yours nine months, that seems like a long time, but I don't know if the other ones were that long. Yeah, no. So our data collection lasted nine months, but the actual training sessions itself were uh, nine weeks, okay. right? Like they're usually eight to 10 weeks because research is being done at universities and you try to crank them out on a semester basis. So subjects come in, in the beginning of semester, you run the study throughout the entire semester and you do post-testing at the end. Um, so that's basically how that works. And, and before I just uh, hand it off to Will, I just want everyone to know, um, we're finally gonna put the nail in the coffin when it comes to volume. <laughs> because uh, we're doing a study this semester and we're collaborating with Brad Schoenfeld, who's like, you know, the, the hypertrophy uh, godfather, so to speak, in the research world. And uh, what we're gonna do is we have a control group. So let's just say we have 30 subjects, 10 of them are gonna come into the lab and we're gonna say, how many sets do you currently do? You're gonna continue doing that. I don't care if it's nine sets, 12 sets, 15 sets, you're just gonna stay doing exactly what you've been doing, okay? Um, the second group is gonna have a 33% increase in volume. And then the third group is going to have a larger increase in volume. So we're finally gonna take into consideration how many sets do they currently do, and we're gonna increase it from there rather than just throwing them into random groups. I love that. I think that's so important to actually look into the contrast of that. But yeah, man, I think, I think one of the most important things is actually, I mean, it's inside coaching, you never take somebody on and go, okay, cool. Here's your plan. It's always like a hundred questions of like, what have you done? What are you doing? What's your history? What's your metabolic history, your training history? Um, so I think that's super important, man. And um, it's exciting. I'm sure even more exciting for you to be collaborating with uh, Brad Schoenfeld just because of who he is. But I always hear this stuff and I'm like, man, to think about going to school and like, all right, this semester I'm going to be in a study about training. Like that's so cool to me, but um, yeah. Will, let's pa pass the mic to you and get your thoughts on the volume research. Man, you know, I think, uh, I think Chris just pretty much knocked it out of the park. You know, that's something that all of the research hasn't necessarily dug deep into. And I'm super excited to see the research that's going to be coming out of the University of Tampa regarding that specific thing. Um, looking back at like the actual application of it, right? Like, just like you said, on our questionnaires, we're asking you how much volume are you specifically doing? And in most cases, for us to kind of up the ante in a sense, like we have to first and foremost, make sure that the individual is executing their movements properly, make sure that we can kind of standardize their form. And then from that point in time, then we can apply a specific amount of volume to essentially make sure you're doing enough work to see 
also a hypertrophy. Um, but in regards to the total amount of sets per week, I don't think that it's any surprise that typically the largest individuals in the world typically do the most sets and reps. I think so too. Um, spending that much time within like the, the natural bodybuilding world. Um, I haven't met, I could say like an elite champion in professional natural bodybuilding who doesn't do insane amounts of vol training volume. Yeah, I would, I would a hundred percent agree. I think, I think the big thing is, is just tracking it in the first place. There's a lot of people. And that was my next question is like, when you have somebody come on, are you like, Hey, like before we start programming, I want you to count your sets. Are you taking a ballpark guess? Or what do you recommend to people who are listening that are like, fuck, I don't even count my volume. Like, is that something I absolutely need to do? Well, I would say that first and foremost, I don't think you need to worry about tracking your volume and all of that until you can first and foremost standardize your exercise execution. Meaning that if you're, if you're doing a bench press, are you just kind of bouncing the weight off of your chest, only feeling your anterior head of your deltoids and your triceps work, or are you actually cognitively focused on flexing and contracting your pecs? Um, I know that Chris has done some research on this, I believe, at the University of Tampa, so I'd actually be interested to hear him talk about this. Um, but standardizing form first and then progressing up from volume there, I think would be the best approach. So starting off with maybe somewhere between maybe 10 and 20 sets per week, depending on the training volume that the person is already doing would probably be a good ballpark to start with. Yeah, I think that's a really good general recommendation. This actually transitions into the next question pretty perfectly. And for people listening to like the best thing to do if you're not tracking volume and you're curious about this stuff literally just even if you don't if you're not even following a specific program look back at your last two weeks and just try to remember what you did and try to look at that volume and see what you were doing because the only way to progress from it is to start tracking or just do exactly this week what you did last week track the number of sets per muscle group and then i would highly recommend what will just said before adjusting volume look at like good volume versus junk volume so what reps are actually putting in good work to, to feel your muscles work. I, I know for me too, especially this is something even just recently, especially for my lower body, ever since my knee surgery, I've been focusing on so much more because I really had no choice. And it's been a game changer for how I feel in the gym and being able to actually like recomp and rebuild some muscle um, without adding a ton of load on my joints. But the next question was actually effort and intent. So inside of a training program, like rather than intensity by load, but like looking at your effort and the intent behind your reps, how important is that if you want to call it a mind muscle connection or the individual's effort inside of each rep compared to total volume and stuff. And will, I want to pass this one to you. Cause I know um, from the content I've seen from you, this is something that you're actually pretty passionate about. And, and we even got a training session in and I remember you doing like a couple tweaks when I was doing reverse flies and it was just like instantly like, Oh shit, drop the weight a little bit. Like let's go back. So what are your thoughts on how important that actually is? Well, I think from, so touching on that first question a bit, and I don't want to backtrack at all, but I think that there's something to be, there's something to be said really quick. And before you go, like trying to adjust your training volume dramatically, I think you have to be able to internalize and like listen to your body. If I'm doing 20 sets per week and I'm training, let's just say if I'm doing a, a let's just say a squat or a leg press or something, am I recovered by the time I'm going in to train my lower body again? Am, is my chest recovered by the time I go back to do a bench press again? If it's not recovered, chances are I'd highly recommend you either A, take an additional day to recover that thing, or B, possibly take back your training volume a bit, okay? So moving forward from that, um, I think that, so there was research, right, that uh, Dr. Bradley Schoenfeld did in 2018 that basically showed that the flexion of the arm um, when there was an internal mind-muscle connection, they saw greater hypertrophy. However, I think that the outcome there was basically that everybody knows how to flex their bicep. 
and not everybody knows how to internally focus on flexing their quad. So I do think that there's a lot to be said in regards to do you have a direct signal and are all cylinders firing when we're talking about can you connect your nervous system to your muscle system? Everybody knows the feeling of going into the gym, they either A, pick up a pair of dumbbells or they grab a machine or something and they just go to town and they just start moving their body, right? And you typically don't even feel the muscles working until you're on set three or four. However, I would say a better idea is to go in run through a series of muscle activation techniques so you can neurologically connect your nervous system to the muscle system. So you can essentially make sure that all of your muscle fibers and all of the motor units responsible that need to be recruited are recruited on your first set. So first and foremost, I would say try to standardize that. Um, something that I actually learned from Chris like, is like actually how to contract my lats. And this was why I essentially became obsessed with the my muscle connection was because as a bodybuilder, my worst body part was always my lats. It was always the lats. No matter what I did, I just didn't know how to rotate my spine. I didn't know how to suppress the scap, retract the scap, elevate the scap. And just by learning those specific things, I was actually able to now feel my lats whenever I train them. So with that being said, I think that there's a lot to be uh, said for your ability to connect your nervous system to your muscle system. And before you go in to try to lift heavy loads or before you go in with the intent to move against resistance, I would highly recommend you do some form of muscle activation for either your lower body or your upper body. I, I think it, it's kind of funny because, um, and I'm interested to hear like uh, Chris's thoughts on what science is actually being done on it. But if you look at this is kind of bro science talking, but if you look at people who are really into the mind muscle connection, usually they're really jacked and they don't have a lot of pain in their joints or like the bodybuilders who are really good with mobility as well. Usually they're into the mind muscle connection. So to me, it's like, and Chris, you can tell me your thoughts on this. It might just be hard to have good research done on that type of thing because it's such a skill. Like I can relate to the lat thing for when I first, this is probably six, seven years ago when I used to work at this gym they started calling me Cody McLittleback and it just drove me fucking crazy. And it was because I had a, I had a small back and really small lats. Um, and I had no idea how to connect to them. And it took me with a really high frequency, but just really focusing on the skill of getting my lats to actually fire and looking at the anatomy of how my body moves and getting them to fire in different positions. Um, but I think that helped me so much build more strength and build more size in my back. But Chris, like what does the science say and what do you kind of implement into your coaching? Sure. So it is really, really difficult to actually study this. Um, there are some limitations when it comes to just EMG, um, EMG data collection as a whole. Um, a lot of people debate that it's not actually measuring uh, neuromuscular activity, and it's more so measuring muscle fiber overlap. Okay. So as a muscle is getting shorter and shorter, and the actin and myosin start basically crossing those cross bridges, um, you're going to get a, a larger amplitude in the EMG signal. So is that actually measuring the neurological firing of the muscle or is it just measuring overlap? There's just a lot of, there, there's, there's some limitations with EMG data, so it is hard to study. But all that aside, um, quality definitely matters over just quantity. And, um, I'm working on a paper right now, and, and one thing that I mentioned in there is that we use volume load, so weight times sets times reps, as a quantitative value to depict how much work was done, right? 
So if you do more volume, you're producing more total work. And I actually debate that because there's a difference between external work or looking at that, those objective values of weights times sets times reps as, as how much work is being done compared to an internal workload, right? How much did that muscle actually work? So um, there's an acute study that I ran back in 2017 and we just shared some of the data at the NSCA conference in regards to the muscle activation component to it. Um, and I don't want to go into too long of a tangent, but we had two separate conditions without controlling volume volume ended up being the same. Okay. So one group did nine sets or one condition did nine sets of bicep curls with their shoulder joint at zero degrees. So in this neutral position, and then the other condition performed three sets of bicep curls with their shoulder extended. So the bicep was lengthened three sets neutral, and then three sets with the shoulder flexed as if they're doing like a spider curl. Okay, so it was basically incline curls, normal curls, and then spider curls. Both conditions performed nine sets. What ended up happening was the total volume was identical between conditions, and we didn't control for that. We just, we let the subjects perform their sets and reps at maximum intensity, and it just so happened to be that volume was the same. But the coolest thing was the condition that varied their joint angle and performed like three different bicep curls instead of one had greater muscle activation. So my thought process is there's a difference between internal workload and external workload, or just moving that amount of weight for that amount of reps, producing that amount of volume load, right? And I think we need to start shifting. So you can't compare, you know, 30,000 pounds of volume on a leg press compared to 30,000 pounds of volume on a squat. But in, in, the, in the research world, we do. Weight times sets times reps is volume. That's volume load, you know? And it just, you can't compare those two things. So there's many limitations. And uh, I think there's a big difference between internal workload and external workload. And there's a huge importance in making sure that the quality of your work is extremely high before you just start caring about how much quantity you're actually doing. So one thing I will kind of, add to that or question you guys on is just, and this wasn't even on our list of topics, but exercise variation. I think that's a good, Chris, I think you've been kind of implementing that and talking about that for a while. So it's probably pretty cool to have a study come out showing its efficacy, but doing, if you're just looking at volume and you try to be really simple and pick the same exercises all week and have a lot of volume, it might not be as ad advantageous as splitting those up and having a different exercise selection, um, joint positioning, so on and so forth. Um, but how much exercise variation is too much? Will we'll let you start on this one since Chris started, uh, just went, but like, what's a good balance of finding the right amount? Cause I think there's people who it's almost too simple. Like just hit the compounds. You're fine. Like do a lot of volume. And then there's people that are like incline cable fly, incline dumbbell fly, pec deck fly, dumbbell yeah, well, floor fly. And it's just like, okay, dude, you're doing a fly. Like, so where is that balance that we need to find? Well, right. But yeah, so I think it's pretty commonplace, right? For most guys, when they start lifting, right, they go in, they want to train their chest, they're doing an incline, a flat, a decline, then they're doing dumbbells, then they're doing chest flies, and they're doing all these various different exercises. What I would say is that you should ideally be able to find a couple exercises that work a, this, you know, similar range of motion or 
a couple exercises that recruit for your specific body type, the muscles that you want to be activated the most and milk those as much as you can. Like as an example, I know that Chris really prefers a hack squat over a barbell back squat, right? If you take into consideration when you're doing a barbell back squat, there's a lot more moving pieces. If you know, possibly you don't have the postural stability to be able to, you know, hold three, four, 500 pounds on your back. How much are you actually loading your quads before you end up loading your L4 and your L5 and your erectors and end up caving on a squat? But if you can load yourself up perfectly on something like a hack squat, you can really feel that on your quads. You know that's an exercise that you personally feel better on your quads than, say, a squat. Then I would say you program that in and you potentially milk that. I would say the same thing in regards to any specific muscle group. What movement do you feel the best? Now, granted, there may be some muscle activations that you may have to go through to be able to figure out what movement patterns you feel the best, but I would always say pick potentially two, potentially three exercises per muscle group and just program those in, milk those until you're no longer progressing. I like that. It's simple, but it makes sense. And I think that ding was at the perfect timing, man. <laughs> Do what's best. Ding. <laughs> I love it. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, man. Um, it, some of it has to do with your experience level um, and what your primary goal is for sure. So if you are a strength athlete, right, um, you need to milk specific movements and get really strong at them so you can become more neurologically efficient at that movement pattern and and just master that skill of that particular lift right um but at the same time if your goal is more hypertrophy focused then maybe you want a little bit more exercise variation to ensure you're training the muscle um in all of its functions okay so just for example let's take the pecs the primary function is horizontal adduction, so the humerus coming closer to your midline as if you're doing a, a flat barbell bench press, right? That's going to train horizontal adduction. But the chest, or especially the clavicular fibers, it's also involved in uh, just shoulder flexion. So doing something like a low to high fly is kind of important to develop that clavicular head or performing a movement that's pure adduction, bringing your arm closer to the side of your hip so doing like a high to low fly is also important right if you only train horizontal adduction over and over and over you're missing two components or, or two actions that the chest is also responsible for performing so i think it depends on what your goal is it's, it's important um last example i would use is you know if you're doing um a bicep curl and the only bicep curl you ever do is a standing dumbbell bicep curl that's totally fine. If, you, if you're going to pick one curl, you might as well do something in a neutral position. But again, if you want to maximize hypertrophy, you probably should do um, bicep curl variations where one, the shoulder is extended, one, the shoulder is flexed, and you're changing the angles at the joint. Um, so it just depends on the goal and most importantly, the experience level. There's no reason to take a beginner and have them do three bicep exercises. One's going to be fine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, quick question for both of you guys, because I know I will get this question after this and I get this question quite a bit about just different random topics, but, uh, for the coaches listening, uh, what are like the best, I guess, books or certification courses you guys can recommend for general anatomy? I think, you know, like I don't have a background in anatomy, but I've coached with so many individuals. I've been in the 
gym for so long that I've just learned and picked up on things over the years. So I can't say like, take this course, but I'm just wondering if you guys have anything to give them. Um, I know anatomy trains is super deep, but that's a book they can look and start like learning about the body and how it moves and stuff. Um, but I'm just curious if you guys have any recommendations for the coaches listening. Chris, you can start. Sure. Um, in regards to like anatomy and, and kinesiology, honestly, any kinesiology textbook will have the information in there. Um, but sometimes reading information is only part of the equation. You need to read that information and then apply it in the gym. So uh, I teach a kinesiology lab here, one, just one day or, or two classes per semester for a different professor. And um, it's a practical application thing. So they already took anatomy and, and kinesiology, and now I'm trying to apply it in the lab where they're actually starting to connect the dots. So they, they pick up pieces of information and knowledge, and now you need to connect the dots. So for anybody who wants to learn more about anatomy and kinesiology, you can honestly do it anywhere. You can grab any textbook or just search the web, look at each muscle group one at a time, learn about the origin and insertion, learn about the muscle function. And then when you go into the gym, when you're doing a chest press, say, okay, what is actually going on at the muscle and at the joint, okay? So no human movement can occur without skeletal muscle contraction. If a joint is moving, a muscle is contracting. So if you're doing a bench press, instead of just saying, okay, I'm doing this bench press, say, okay, I'm keeping my scapula retracted, and now my glenohumeral joint or my upper arm is horizontally adducting as I'm performing the press. So the muscle is getting shorter as I'm performing the concentric, the muscle is getting longer as I'm performing the eccentric. And you just learn over time. I think it's uh, important to take pieces of information, go to the gym and just think about it differently, right? Think about that insertion point getting closer and closer to the origin as you're performing the concentric and think about the muscle lengthening and the insertion point moving further and further away from the origin as you're doing the eccentric. I think that's a good way to kind of summarize just learning and, and building the skill of the mind muscle connection as well. Um, I think a lot of people just go through the motions or just kind of crank out reps and they don't stop to think about what's going on. So that's huge. Well, what about you? Yeah, I actually absolutely love how Chris described that because that's exactly pretty much the way that I learned how to control my back. Finally, um, I had an anatomy, uh, uh, kind of like a more of like a, uh, essentially like an anatomy chart, basically, to where I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, these are the joints, these are the bones, what connects, you know, from bone, bone to bone, muscle fibers, and then what's the origin, what's the insertion, and then how do I move that in space to be able to contract that and be able to lengthen that. Um, but I would say that uh, from like an educational perspective, uh, Tom Purvis, um, owner of RTS down, I think he's down in Fort Lauderdale. Um, he's a phenomenal resource. And then um, the guys over at N1, Cassim uh, Hansen, he's doing amazing work over there with his educational platform as well. And um, a lot of it to me was just the curiosity, right? It's like I was a bodybuilder for a long time. I guess you could say I still am. But it was always the curiosity of saying, man, like, could this workout or could this exercise be better? can I be in better control of this movement pattern and actually utilize the fibers I want to utilize for the entire active range of motion? Because oftentimes, you know, when I was playing football coming up all the way through my adolescence and through college, um, I just realized like all I was doing was throwing around weights. 
And as a result of that, my joints just got pounded and pounded and pounded. And now I'm actually in a position where I know that I'm using my muscles to move resistance. Whereas before, I know I'm using my muscles, but at the same time, I'm only using my muscles within a specific piece of the range of motion. And I'm not actually in control of every single piece of that range of motion for a specific exercise. I love that. I, I think that's one of the big keys, like I kind of mentioned earlier, like really successful bodybuilders who are into the mind-muscle connection and mobility, they don't have a lot of pain and a lot of them don't have an ego in the gym as well. So I think part of that is just letting go of the ego and not being worried about what's on the bar necessarily, which um, again, kind of translate into the next subject of training to failure. Like, is there a time and a place for it or should we just avoid it completely? I know Mass uh, Research Review has done some cool studies kind of going back and forth of like, there's one study that was done basically saying that we should probably, I don't want to say completely stay away from it because I think there's a place, in my opinion, for it with safe exercises, a lateral raise, for example. I don't think you're going to destroy your nervous system or have too many issues failing on that necessarily. Um, but they were kind of uh, showing that if you stay away from complete failure, you're probably going to recover better, meaning frequency is going to be able to be higher, total volume is going to end up being higher. So staying away from failure is a good thing. And then there was another study that showed uh, I believe it was on the bench press. And if you guys know of the study, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they were basically like, put your 10 rep max on the bar and then we're going to spot you. And all the subjects outperformed 10 reps by a long shot. I think like the highest was like 26 reps or some shit. Um, yeah. And it just goes to show like, okay, like are you using RPE and saying that you're staying away from failure, but your RPE of eight is really like a two or a four because you could technically get 16 with that. Um, so Will, we'll start with you, but do you have a place for training to failure with your clients and with yourself? I do. Yeah. But I have a place for failure, but as long as the environment I'm putting you in, I know is safe. Meaning that if you have, you know, weak postural muscles, I'm probably not going to tell you to do a conventional deadlift AMRAP. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Again, if you have weak postural muscles, you're not, you're not able to hold that barbell on your back with an upright torso position, I'm probably not going to have you do an AMRAP on a squat, right? Um, but, but at the same time, I will, in most cases, create an environment where I feel like you can produce the most output and actually take the set to failure. Um, so I like the fact that you did say, you know, are people just kind of utilizing like the RPE scale and cutting themselves short? And I think that a lot of people kind of use it as almost like an excuse to stop early. Um, I feel like a lot of people typically just don't train really, really hard anymore. And, you know, if anything, a lot of the research regarding like 10 sets being the minimal effective dose, 20 sets being max or however many sets it is now. I think a lot of times it's just allowing people to say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to bench 225 pounds. I'm only going to go to an eight RPE, but I'm never actually approaching failure. How do you ever truly know what you're capable of? And that's something that you, you know, pretty much nailed on the head is the reason that I utilize these sets when, I'm, when I have clients go to failure, and it's not all the time. Typically, it's only going to be the advanced ones. But when I have clients going to failure, it's so that I can actually see how have we progressed during this block and what do you actually have? Like what's the intestinal fortitude that you have? How many reps can you sit your butt down on a leg press with X amount of hundreds of pounds? How many reps are you truly capable of? Because we've been stopping at 12 and it's very, very commonplace, whether that be for an overhead press, you know, pull downs, bent over rows, deadlift, whatever type of exercise you're doing, a hack squat, whatever, that oftentimes the amount of volume that the person is actually doing 
is so much less than what they're actually truly capable of. So I actually like to utilize sets to failure as I guess I'll call them realistic, like realistic power sets. So like, what are you actually capable of? And it's very, very commonplace that if I have a client that can do three sets of 12 with, you know, four plates on each side on leg press, I have them do their two sets. And then on the third set, I'll have them do an AMRAP. And it's very common they get over 20. Yeah, I think, I think that's going to build way more self-awareness. And I think that's what it comes down to, right? It's like, first, like you kind of mentioned, uh, it's basically weighing out risk versus reward. Like looking at this, this exercise, if you take it to failure, is the risk higher than the reward? And you have to weigh that out before you do it. But I think that people can create failure with a lot less weight if they learn the intent about an exercise. And that's kind of what you're alluding to. And for me personally, I know with my programming, like with myself, I found after a while that I actually liked having like ranges of reps. So like I'm going to hit between eight to 12 and I'm going to have like a reps and reserve of blank. And I'm just focusing on hitting a certain intent and, and really creating maximal fight. Like I don't care if my sets go from like eight to nine to 12, or if they go from 12 down to eight by the last set, if my intent is at that close to true failure, I think that's important because that effort is what's creating hypertrophy in some sense. Yeah, I want to reiterate one more thing too that the exercises that you choose are very important. Yeah. Meaning that a lot of people have created training programs where, you know, the foundation of the training program, and granted, sure, it might, it might be for powerlifting, but at the same time, if you take an individual who, you know, when they squat down to the bottom of the hole in a squat and their up their upper chest just caves in and they bail with the weight, like you probably shouldn't have somebody like that squatting. You need to take numerous steps backwards. You need to make sure that all of their weaknesses are strong before you put a barbell on their back. I would say the same thing for somebody who's, you know, programming in a deadlift, make sure that all of the, you know, postural muscles on your body, your posterior chain is extremely strong. Um, and this is something that, you know, if you look at like the uh, training programs from overseas and the kind of the way that they operate in the um, Olympic lifting world is that when young children come into the gym, they put them on the GHD and they get them strong as hell, mm -hmm. right? Even strong enough to put a barbell on their back and still go, right? If you think about that, if you then walk up to a squat, squat, you stand or whatever, right? You grab that barbell, you put it on your back. How strong is your posterior chain going to be? can you squat down at the bottom and maintain an upright torso position? I say in most cases, yes. But in America, the first thing you do is like, oh, so-and-so is squatting, so I have to squat. But your physique isn't even built for squatting. You go in, you squat, you know, six months later, you're injured. Yeah. I, I, th I think that's the, and that's why I love, you mentioned uh, Chris doing hack squats over back squats. I think that inside of hypertrophy, like I hate when people – claim that the back squat is the holy grail or like this like you have to comp like at the end of the day like if we're looking at aesthetic changes there is no best exercise for everybody it's so individual and it really depends on where you feel best where you're most comfortable where you can create the most range of motion or the maximal recruitment of the fibers um, and i think that changes for so many people now if you're a power lifter you have to squat so let's figure out a way to build your body to squat better um, if you're training for performance I don't think you necessarily need to back squat, but you probably need to squat and you definitely need to build the posterior chain. So I'm glad that you put that in there because there's so many amazing athletes out there that do a ton of glute and ham work and erector work and just back work in general. And I think it's so important. Um, Chris, training to failure, what's your opinion on it? 
Yeah, training a failure. Um, it's more and more important uh, the more advanced you become. So if you're you know, a beginner, intermediate, I think um, the training stimulus alone is going to provide you with an adaptation response. So you take someone into the gym, they've never lifted before, whatever, they've been lifting for three months. They can train at an RPE of seven or eight, and they're going to get great freaking results because they're so far away from their genetic potential and, and they're so far away from that ceiling. Um, but the closer and closer you get to your ceiling, you kind of need to continue to knock on that door a bit more and try pushing the ceiling higher and higher. And that's just going to require you to train closer to failure and reach failure uh, just in a very strategic and smart way where you're still managing your fatigue because of going to failure. Right. So I think it's, I think it's actually very, very important. Um, one other thing I wanted to say is the research in this realm is actually really cool, but the biggest difference is when people are training to failure in the lab or if someone's training at an RPE of eight in the laboratory setting, that's a true RPE of eight or they're truly going to failure. Whereas people just going to the gym, you know, if they say they're doing an RPE of eight, they're really doing an RPE of six or five. And, and people need to know what they're like truly made of and like what does failure training look like for them because it'll just open up a whole new can of like, I don't want to say can of worms, but it'll just open up um, a whole new window of opportunity and, and self-belief. Um, if you take someone who's never really, really pushed it and you take them to true failure, they actually start believing in themselves more. They become more confident and then their overall training improves. So let's just say they were training at, you know, a true RPE of six. Now maybe they're training at a true RPE of eight moving forward um, for the majority of their sets. And every once in a while that they take it to a true RPE of 10, but the average lifter in the gym just doesn't know what a true set to failure looks like. And they're, they're missing out because of that. I think that like you can't do this all the time, but I definitely agree with you. And I think that everybody listening should get a spotter at some point in time and just take their list of failure, true failure once just to learn what you can do. I know like I did it way back when I, uh, we used to have like a crew of guys that would train together. So it was easier to do these things, but we would put like your body weight on the bar of a trap bar and just like go till you literally can't. And you will surprise yourself how many more reps you can get. Now, granted, this isn't the safest thing in the world. So I'm not saying everybody should absolutely go do this, but um, for those seriously wanting to train hard, I do think there's a lot of merit to what you're saying, Chris, and just being able to go out there and actually perform a true set failure, like gun to your head, RPE of eight versus like what you think an RPE of is. And, and I think that self-awareness goes a long way in, in what you can do. And I think the people that build great physiques probably have a good self-awareness of that in general. Yeah, I agree, man. I think too, uh, something that I wanted to highlight really quick is that, you know, so I, I have local clients that I typically meet up with and I can either train them at a gym or at my home gym. And, you know, usually I'll have them doing my entire training program and they'll come over and they'll be like, the training program is pretty easy coach. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And we do one, we do one exercise, right? Before that one exercise is over with, they're like, I've never felt this muscle this way. I've never been this fatigued from doing this specific movement pattern. 
And really, you're just you, you've been sandbagging it for a long time. Um, to provide an example, you know, I had one girl who's uh, competing in about four weeks. And um, when I met up with her at a local gym, she was doing RDLs with maybe 40 pounds, right? And I was like, is this how much weight you typically always use? And she's like, yeah, I've been doing the same weight for probably about, you know, it'd been months in a row. And we trained together once. Within the next four weeks, she was doing the 70s. And I'm like, that's been there the whole time. You know, you just didn't have anybody to push you to that point or possibly even you weren't actually feeling it the way that you were supposed to. But now you have a neurological connection. You have somebody who's pushed you to that place so you can actually figure out what you're actually made of in the gym. Yeah, I'm actually really happy with where this failure question went because I think all everything you guys are saying is so damn important. And I actually I think for like online coaches listening to I think this is why I always tell people like if they ask me like how to start an online business or I want to get into online coaching and I'm always like, have you coached people in person before? Like, I think it should be a prerequisite. Like I, I think I trained people in person for six years before I even started my first online client. I think it is, it's not a number of years that matters, but it's just the physical action of being with somebody in person and queuing and coaching and communicating. And that translates so much into how you program, how you educate and how you just write notes and cues inside your programming of an actual online client. Um, but it's so, so important, man. I, I think a lot of people expect the training to failure thing to be more centered around volume, honestly, and taking that route. But I'm, I'm glad you guys both agreed and took it that path because I think it's so important um, in the right context. Uh, yeah. I have two more questions on training and then we're going to switch to nutrition. Um, the next one is program hopping. So Chris, we'll let you start with this, but how long should somebody stick to the same movements? I think there's there's merit for a good amount of variety and there's merit to say like, you need to stick with this as long as you can progress. But how long should each like mesocycle be? And within that mesocycle, like how often can we actually change movements or which movements can we change? Is it a matter of like compounds need to stick for X amount of weeks? Uh, you can be kind of intuitive with your accessory work, which I actually think they did like an auto-regulated kind of program study uh, in mass where they talked about people kind of adjusting and auto-regulating their accessory work. But Chris, we'll let you take this one, like program hopping in general, what are your thoughts on it and what do you recommend? Sure. Um, it's, it's one of those things where obviously depends on so many freaking factors. Um, generally speaking, the lifts that you want to get stronger on are the ones that need to stay for a longer period of time. So that's generally going to be a compound movement. Um, if you want to get really, really good at hack squats, you can't hack squat for four weeks, leg press for four weeks, and then barbell back squat for four weeks and expect to like get better at hack squatting when you just did three different exercise variations over a 12-week cycle. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's the biggest deal if you know one week you're doing a dumbbell preacher curl because you're at some random gym and that's what you have access to. And then the next week you're doing a machine pin loaded preacher curl because you're in a different gym or you're traveling or whatever it may be on a single joint accessory lift like that. So um, if your goal is to make as much progress as possible, you definitely want to milk out movements and progressively overload um, for a longer period of time, just like stretch that to a longer, uh, longer end of the spectrum, so to speak. Um, but it's going to depend on, how consistent is your training schedule too? Like what your lifestyle is like, are you always training in the same exact gym with the same exact equipment? Or are you someone that's kind of on the road and you try to get the best workout um, 
in whenever you have the opportunity to. So it depends. Um, if there's like a very specific question, feel free to, to kind of dive a bit deeper, but it just, it depends on so many variables. So, so let me ask you this inside of your clients, let's say you have somebody who's more focused on aesthetics in general, obviously. Um, what is your typical go-to for how long you program a client's program for? Sure. Um, they'll probably run the same program for 12 to 16 weeks. And then when I make an adjustment, the split might stay exactly the same. And we're just mixing up a few movements or changing the rep scheme or rep goal on certain movements. Um, we might also change exercise order. So just for example, if they've been on their push day, let's just say they've been doing their chest press first for eight to 12 weeks, and they made a ton of progress on their pecs, but their delts didn't really come up much, then maybe their overhead press or their shoulder press movement is going to come first um, for their next mesocycle. Um, or another example would be, let's say one of their accessory lifts was a, you know, cable rope tricep extension, and they did that for eight to 12 weeks. Maybe the next accessory movement is going to be a machine tricep extension, um, where their shoulder is in a fixed position, like the opposite of a creature curl. Um, just a small minor adjustment might be all they need. You know, also depends on their motivation. Are they still enjoying the program and are they loving it or are they really sick of it and they, they want some exercise uh, variation? I think obviously, and I think this goes for every question on this podcast, every question we could possibly ask, it always depends because there's so many things that change, but I think it's good for you to put some kind of a number to it because I think there's a lot of people who have a problem with not sticking with things long enough. They're like really not milking the progress they could be making in the movement and they're just so quick to jump ship and change over when they could have maximized more volume or more intensity or just more load in general on that movement because they weren't done progressing. So like going until you truly are done progressing on that movement, I think has some merit. Absolutely. I think if you have a program where the exercise selected within that program are appropriate for you, there is no reason for you to run it less than eight weeks because you should be able to make progress in that, in that time span. Um, and if you're just changing it because you're getting sick of it, it's like you might need to change your perspective and think about what is going to lead to the most amount of progress for you in the grand scheme of things. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, eight weeks would be the absolute minimum in, in my opinion, but most people can milk it for way, way longer as long as they're staying motivated and enjoying the program. Yeah. Love it. Well, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with just about everything that Chris said. Um, typically, my training programs are anywhere from about 10 to 12 weeks, um, where something that I, I try to keep in mind is, you know, I analyze the physique of a client and I say, okay, if you have very well-developed, you know, pecs and anterior heads or your deltoids, well, probably, chances are on your upper body days, we should not start with a bench press first, right? We should actually start with something that works your upper back to kind of start to level out the musculature that's there. Um, similarly, if we're working with a female client who has, you know, say, let's say overly developed quads in, in comparison to her glutes and her hamstrings, and that's a visual, then we should, you know, in most cases, start with something that's going to recruit the glutes and the hamstrings before we actually tentatively focus on the quads. I would even say that we can take the glutes and the hamstrings into like an extreme hypertrophy phase where we do have a lot of volume, but we're actually putting the quadriceps at like maintenance for quite a while. Because in most cases, right, like they love training their quads and chances are they have a really good mind muscle connection with their quads. 
But similarly, the same people who have really amazing quads but don't have any glutes and hamstrings, they usually can't feel their glutes and hamstrings the same way that they feel their quads, right? Again, same thing kind of connects to the chest or the back or the biceps and the triceps and all of these muscles. So I like to try to bring up lagging body parts first and foremost, just to make sure that the athlete has a very well-balanced physique. Um, but in regards to the training program duration, I'd say anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks is probably going to be about the shortest that I allow um, an athlete to stick to a program. Um, but the, the context there, though, is that how are you recovering from the actual amount of training volume of the program and with kind of that the play call or the audible being if you feel like you need an additional day to recover, just take the additional days to recover. Um, I would follow that up by saying that I think the people who have made the most muscular progression um, likely have stuck to very similar movement patterns for a very long period of time, and their physiques are thick and dense, and it's because of that. I love that, man. I think the patience key is so huge. Um, and I'm so glad you guys both are on the same page, and you guys have helped develop so many physiques. I just I see a lot of people who are quick to jump um, programming, and I think part of the reason I see it a lot is because uh, we work with a lot of CrossFitters as well um, inside the nutrition space and CrossFit workouts change every single time you step foot in the gym, um, which it, it makes sense from a CrossFit sport perspective because, uh, and this is not like throwing shit at CrossFit because I think it's a great sport, but it's literally throwing a million things out on the field and you have to be good at all these things at once. Like, so of course your training is literally going to be random because you have to be good at being random but when we look at building hypertrophy or strength like you actually have to get good at something um so i think that's really really important for people to hear um the last thing inside of training that we have uh and will we'll start with you on this one is where this all changes inside of fat loss so we've talked about volume we've talked about training to failure we've talked about intent we've talked about um how long your program should be what if any changes are you making when a client goes from strength or hypertrophy phase into a fat loss phase all right. Well, um, <laughs> I would say that there's a huge misconception here in within the physique space, right? So um, most people would say, hey, if you're going to be trying to lose body fat, you'll burn more calories. If you have higher repetition, lower weight, you do that for conditioning or to get leaner. Um, however, I would say that the movement, the, you know, the training style that you've used, the repetitions, the intensities, all of these things should essentially remain unchanged because the thing that helped you build the muscle is the thing that in most cases is going to help you preserve the tissue that's there. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a super strong dude, you know, and you're, you're back squatting 500 pounds, it'd probably be a good idea when you're in fat loss to still have that same muscle stimulus on your muscles. Otherwise, if all you did was you ixnade the squat, you went to leg press and you did, you know, three sets of 30 or something, can you still elicit a hypertrophic response from that? Yes. But that neurological recruitment from doing super high weight is not going to be there. So in most cases, what I recommend doing is not changing anything until calories get low enough to where they just can't recover from the volume. Because I don't think that it's, I don't necessarily think that the neurological stimulus is the problem. I think it's just that they're doing excessive amounts of volume. And as they're getting leaner, as calories are getting more restricted, I just typically take volume away. So let's say, for instance, if we're with, you know, maybe, uh, maybe three sets of 12, that's 36 total reps. You know, we may over the course of time start to tinker that back, but I eventually 
essentially want them to try to keep the load that they're using on the bar until they may have to take the load back. But what I would even do is say, if you're doing sets of eight, right, with 225 on bench, I would not reduce the load. I would just say, instead of going to eight, if you can only get seven, go to seven. If you only get six, go to six. If you can only get five, go to five. Because what I realize is that in most cases, when I'm prepping an athlete, strength is relative to their body weight, all right? So we are keeping them just as strong, if not stronger, when they're actually in the competition preparation. Because in most cases, the athletes that are in that phase, they are so determined that nothing is going to make them weaker unless they psychologically say, oh, I'm dieting, I should be weaker. I, in essence, flip that around. I say, you're dieting, you should be preserving your strengths. I love that, man. I think I'll echo a lot of what you said. Um, One question I would have for you is just for the list, because I know this comes up a lot in the whole idea of doing higher up stuff or conditioning and to burn more calories. Is the calorie expenditure really that much different (laughs) between those type of rev zones and, and strength training in general that it even makes sense to do that? I will, well, I would say that it depends. Um, so any muscle contraction is going to burn calories, right? Now, if I'm doing three, if, let's just say, for instance, as an example, if I'm doing four sets of 25 on leg press versus doing four sets of 10 on leg press, am I going to burn more calories doing four sets of 25? I would say that I would, right? Um, however, I would also say that if I did four sets 25 on leg press, it would take me forever to recover from that. So I would never have anybody do that, but muscle contractions burn calories at the end of the day. So if you're doing more contractions, chances are you could be burning more calories, but then you're not forcing the stimulus to preserve the tissue either because every single load you use is light. And that's kind of where I was going with that. I don't think the merit of burning more calories is worth enough to not do the other type of stimulus that's actually going to help the physique overall. So I agree with you 100%. Um, I think it's just a huge misconception like you started with in the first place. Um, Chris, what about you? Is there any changes you make or do you pretty much agree with him? And, and I'd be curious on your thoughts with the low rep stuff too because I think there are um, there's a lot of people that recommend the exact same thing as you just did, Will, with keeping some strength, lower rep stuff in, and just really trying to maintain that load on the bar to keep that neuromuscular, uh, that central nervous system stimulus. But there's also people that are really aiming to keep volume as high as possible because they say that has a bigger contributing factor to maintaining muscle. I think in my opinion, what I've read and what I've heard from people, I think either way is going to work. There's a lot of people that get great results with people in preps that do both kind of paths. Um, but Chris, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on that statement and uh, just on the topic in general. Sure. Yeah. I agree with basically everything Will said. Um, I don't change anything until a change needs to be made. So it's not like, all right, we're starting a fat loss focus phase. We're going to change X, Y, and Z. Um, I basically keep everything the same. And then when the athlete reports something back to me um, where this movement is no longer being effective, their strength has significantly decreased on that specific movement pattern, maybe because their leverages have changed or whatever it may be, then I'll swap out an exercise um, and just change the exercise while keeping the amount of working sets the same. So if it were something like uh, incline barbell bench press, if their, their pressing strength just kind of went to shit as they lost a lot of weight, Um, and the incline barbell bench press is no longer as effective as it previously was, I might switch them over to a hammer strength incline press machine. Um, But if they were previously doing four sets at approximately eight to 10 reps, then they're going to go over to the hammer strength and do four sets at eight to 10 reps at the same intensity. 
Um, so the volume's completely different. The exercise is a different variation of it, but it's getting the job done and it, it can probably be more efficient at that time. Um, so it, it happens a lot too with squatting at the end of prep. Um, if they're just no longer able to maintain heavy enough loads to stimulate the muscle, then I'm going to swap out that barbell squat for a machine squat because you need to take into consideration the fatigue to stimulus ratio. If that barbell back squat is just fatiguing the crap out of them from a central nervous standpoint and they're unable to recover from it while simultaneously not providing them with a good stimulus and not providing them with a lot of mechanical tension on their quads, then it's a lose-lose, right? So I would rather swap it out for like a machine free motion squat or a hack squat, get their quads really sore, actually move that muscle through a large range of motion, provide a lot of tension on it, even though it's a completely different movement now. Um, but they would still do four sets if they were previously doing four sets. Right. So to kind of summarize that in, would you just say that the goal inside of a fat loss phase is to maintain strength and muscle? more than anything else and let the diet do the rest a hundred percent especially for the more advanced person um, if you're a beginner or even intermediate i'm a recomp fanatic so um, i'm i always try to build muscle and lose fat simultaneously when possible depending on the experience level um, but going back to what you and will were saying you absolutely want to preserve as much muscle as possible because getting back into the high rep versus low rep range, even if you're burning more calories during the exercise session, if you were to do higher reps with lighter weight, if you're not preserving your lean body mass, your resting metabolic rate is going to decrease. The more lean body mass you have and preserve, that's what's going to keep your resting metabolic rate higher. So, you don't want to just think about what you're doing in the 60 to 90 minutes while you're in the gym, but how many calories are you burning at rest? If you're having a more effective workout and you're creating a greater adaptation response, you're actually going to be burning more calories after the training session anyway. So yeah, I'm definitely not going to change um, repetition goals and, and decrease the load just for the purpose of decreasing the load. I love it, man. I think that's a great way to kind of, summarize and end that topic and the training we'll go into nutrition now we have time for a few more questions and i think it's funny i just want to point this out like next time uh i do a round table i might have to find two people that have completely different perspectives because it's always like i did that last time where i got austin and steve and i was actually kind of expecting because austin's very into the, the anatomy and execution and intent um, and Steve is very uh, much in the volume camp, not necessarily volume camp, but he does talk about volume a lot. He programs about volume. So I kind of expected them to butt heads and both of them were like, oh, it depends. It's kind of in the middle. Oh, it's in the gray area. And it was like so in between everything, which I think also shows like great coaching because I think great coaching is always an it depends kind of thing. But it's just funny to me because um, but it's good education for people because they're hearing experts go over the same topics and agreeing with the same things and, and not being dogmatic. So I appreciate the viewpoints of you guys. But um, let's dive into nutrition. Now we're going to get into a few topics. And the first one's going to be more of like, more of an opinion. And uh, this is kind of partially because I get questions about it all the time, but partially just a uh, just personal interest. So it's kind of a selfish question. But I want to hear you guys thoughts on the current state of reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation. I think 
reverse dieting is a very popular topic and it's, it's kind of blowing up. And I think there's good information about it. And I think there's a lot of misleading information about it. Um, I think a lot of people are misunderstanding what it is and what it's for and when to implement it and how slow you can go and so on and so forth. And just what metabolic adaptation is. And to an extent that in some scenarios, it's okay. It's, it's part of getting lean. Um, but I want to hear you guys thoughts and, and Chris, we'll start with you since we'll start the last one, just your general viewpoints and thoughts and, and what you would want the listeners to hear about reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation. Sure. Um, I think it's very important to have some sort of re- reverse dieting plan um, post diet phase, whether it's competition or not um, for multiple reasons. A, if you get lean, you reach a, a goal physique and you just improve your overall health, um, especially if that's more like gen pop and you got to a healthy body fat percent, not a unhealthy body fat percent. Um, the last thing you want to do is regain a ton of body weight, um, fall into a vicious cycle of yo-yo dieting and no longer really being um, proud of what you accomplished, right? So you need to have a plan in place um, just to make sure that you actually stay healthy and the work you've put in to that point um, has served a valuable purpose that you can kind of maintain. Um, But then from a a metabolic standpoint, um, it's important to also increase calories at a rate that your body can actually handle it. Um, You don't want to necessarily shock the system, have so many calories coming in, especially if you were on a low calorie diet for a long period of time, that your body can't efficiently utilize that fuel and then you just regain fat at a faster period of time but it's absolutely part of the process where you are going to metabolically adapt both while dieting down and while reversing up Um, at some point if depending on how extreme you're going to get um, you are going to have negative adaptations occur basically regardless. And if you're trying to get extremely lean, especially for contest preppers, um, which is who I primarily work with, um, you're going to have to dig and you're just going to have to kind of accept that for the most part. Um, I want to share a few uh, examples of certain clients and, and some specific numbers, but I also want Will to share his thoughts on the overall subject first. And then I'll just kind of give some, um, some examples. Um, yeah, sure. So the, the idea of kind of reverse recovery dieting, um, metabolic adaptation, um, that I mean, this was kind of first brought up a couple of years into my coaching. I think I was in maybe year two, maybe year two or three. And this was back in like 2012 or 2013 when we first started talking about metabolic adaptation. Um, and I guess the, the biggest point that I could make here is that too many people in the world are over dieting and over exercising. And this is what's causing metabolic adaptation. So I know that Chris works predominantly with physique athletes. I work with physique athletes too, but my general population clientele is probably right now about 60, 40. Um, So obviously I think the number one thing that we could predominantly do starting out with a general population client is actually educate them from the beginning. Like this is going to happen. However, we already have a tentative plan of action for when it does happen. We know exactly what we're going to do. And this is where the concept of nutritional periodization comes in. Because if I can show you the plan, if I can show you the the yellow brick road, right, before we even get there, this is where you're at, this is where you're going, this is what we're going to encounter along the way, 
then you are able to go into that with so much more awareness than you've ever had in your life. And when you get to the end of that fat loss phase, you already know coach has your back. He has a plan of action and we are going to keep this weight off for good. This will be the last time you have to lose fat. I love that. It's like, in my mind, a perfect answer for, uh, on the education piece. And I agree with you a hundred percent, Will. And that's exactly how we approach too. And I think the biggest thing with that as well, just to add in there is in my experience, and I'm sure you guys would agree with this. Like when you have that plan and you educate your client on what the periodization is going to look like, their adherence is so much better because they don't feel like they're in the dark. They don't feel like they're just listening to somebody and just doing what they say. They actually know what's happening, why it's happening and what the next step is. And when you explain those things, I mean, two things happen. Number one, they adhere to your plan better. They're more consistent. They're going to get better results. But number two, at some point in time, they are no longer going to work with you. They're a human being. You're not going to coach them for the rest of their life. So when they do go on their own, they know what to do. And it's because of you as a coach. So I think that's so important. I'm glad you touched on that. Because I know we skipped the, the nutritional periodization question that we had planned on. But I mean, it's essentially just that. If we really simplify periodization, it's planning, right? But I think a true periodization plan with nutrition is, is showing your client, okay, where are we going? How long is it going to take? What are we going to encounter along the way? How are we going to negate those uh, negative feedbacks with diet breaks or refeeds or phasing different things? Um, and then what's the plan, of course, after you reach your goal? How do we do the reverse of what we did in the right way? Um, so, so important, man. I'm glad that you approached it that way. And, and Chris, if you want to bring up the case studies as well, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. Just to provide the, the listeners with some examples so they can see, um, how things can adapt in both directions, right? So uh, one specific client, I pulled up their spreadsheet so I can get the specific numbers. Um, when she first came to me, she was eating around 1,600 calories, weighing around 123 pounds. We've been working together for two years now, and she's had her eyes on this 2019 competition season since 2017. So it's been a very long, long vision, a long process. But uh, long story short, we took her from 1,600 calories to 2,500 calories over a two-year time period. And the cool thing was she's basically the same exact weight. So we increased her calories by 900 calories per day um, while being the same body weight. However, her body composition is way different. She is more muscular now. She's carrying more lean mass um, at, that, at this new 123 pounds than she previously was two years ago. And that's part of the reason why. Right? She's building lean tissue throughout this process. The thing I want to point out now, she's finally in her fat loss phase. And even though we built up her metabolic capacity and we got her calories so high, she's right back down to 1600 calories to shred up. So it's like, is it great that we built up her metabolic capacity? Absolutely. Um, it, it supported her training. It supported her performance and recovery and enabled her to build muscle tissue. But now she's in this fat loss phase and it's not like she's going to get contest lean on 2000 calories. She's currently at 1600 and change, and she might have to get down to 1200 to, to be contest lean. And that's totally fine. It's not like our uh, off season and this, this uh, reverse dieting phase that we went through was a waste. It served its purpose. It was, it was fantastic, but it's, it's not magical and you're going to adapt in both directions. I'm really, really glad that you use that type of example because I think a lot of people assume if they build up their calories to a certain point that they're going to be able to, okay, now we've built up to, like you said, 2,500, let's cut a couple hundred calories and, and we'll start seeing better fat loss. And I think, I don't know if there's any research to prove this, but I think everybody kind of has that 
that line or that threshold where it's like, you're just going to have to dig past this point. And, and as you do more fat loss phases, you kind of know your own body is like, we really start seeing progress when, and like, I hate this, but like, I know for me is like every time I break below 200 carbs, I finally start seeing like serious results happen. And I would love to get really lean on like even just 225 carbs. Give me that. But it's just not going to happen. Like, and, and I can build my carbs up to 350 on a daily basis and not gain a ton of weight. But when it comes to get really lean, it's, it's just, I got to do it. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I'm actually really happy you, uh, you brought that up too, Chris, because you know, the understanding, you know, years ago was like, if you just build your metabolic ceiling, all you got to do is cut from that. And then you're going to be able to contest prep on 200 calories. I'm like, you're a 120 pound girl who competes in bikini. Like it ain't going to happen, you know? And, um, the fact that you presented that's very, very fascinating. Cause obviously I've, I've seen it numerous times over and over again. And, uh, just the, I guess you could say just the, the idea that so many people like live in a metabolically adapted phase, right. And they never know what it actually feels like for them to optimize their health and to thrive. They never find that out their entire adult life. They've never gone over 1400, 1500 calories. And then when they start working with us, what happens is they start out at that 1400 calorie mark. We reverse them up to 2000 calories and keep their body weight. I mean, unless there are like, I, Uh oh. Yeah, we lost him, right? <laughs> yeah, he's okay. frozen. We'll see if he connects back in. Last time he froze, he popped back in. Okay. There he goes. Am I back? You're what back. was the last thing you heard? <laughs> what was the last thing you heard? Uh, you basically said, I'm drawing a blank, man. What was the last thing he said? Yeah, you were you were basically going in where like you can't be a bikini competitor and diet on that low of calories, and, and a lot of people don't understand what it's like to thrive, right? Like where oh, you're yeah. at a point oh, where you get them to thrive, um, and I think it's yeah. a good I think it's a good statement. And I think a lot of but that's that's also the importance of tracking biofeedback too, because a lot of people will come to us, and I'm like, okay, well, like you know, how is your sleep, your mood, your stress, your cravings? Like, do you get irritable often? They're like, I, I don't know, like, I guess I don't know, like. Okay, well, let's track those things for a little bit and see how you actually feel. And it's a good marker to listen to, too, because reverse dieting can be hard. Like you're bringing up calories, you're possibly going to gain weight, especially for female competitors or athletes or just clients in general. So you're looking at those things and seeing like, okay, you know what, like I gained a pound or like I feel a little bit heavier or retaining more water because I'm increasing carbs, but I am sleeping better. I'm hitting PRs in the gym. I'm less moody. Like it, it, I have an easier lifestyle. And I think those things are way more important. And I think thriving can kind of apply to all those things. But the thing I want to ask about this, and Will, you can start with this since we were on you when you froze, um, is I get this question a lot too. And I think it's, it's a massive, it depends answer, but I just want to get your take on it. When should this reverse stop? You know, there's some people that will say, oh, when you get to... 16 times your calories or 18 times your body weight and calories or whatever it may be, or just when you start feeling better. And it's like, well, should you keep pushing that ceiling as high as possible just to say I can eat this much? Or like, is there any merit to stopping at a certain point? And like, how do you gauge that? Yeah. So because I've been around so long, I've kind of talked about the different things that I've seen um, before. It was like, you know, we had coaches kind of bragging that their female clients were eating so many calories. And it's like, right. look, 300 club, 400 club, like astronomical amounts of carbohydrates. But at the same time, a lot of these females are also gaining weight outside of their quote unquote comfort zone, 
right? And um, so I think that there is a ceiling to each individual person, but I would say you need to start kind of pump, pumping the brakes when they are uncontrollably gaining weight. Meaning that, you know, if they were 120 pounds, um, they competed at, let's just say they competed at 120 pounds, and then they're coming out of their fat loss phase, we would go into a recovery diet approach. And then once they've kind of stabilized there, we'd likely start a reverse diet from that point in time. Now, once we've gotten them to a place where they are quote unquote healthy, they're no longer stage lean, they're in a place where they can preserve that, we will reverse diet their calories up to a baseline to where if we go above that, they will likely gain weight too fast. We'll taper that back down and we'll say, now we are at your new energy homeostasis. This is a perfect position for you to stay in because there's no sense in taking that same girl and trying to bump her up to 300 or more grams of carbohydrates when her metabolism can't metabolize that amount of glucose. Because all you're essentially doing is you're leading, to a, 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 you're leading them to a place of insulin resistance, right? And then they're not even going to be metabolizing or utilizing the glucose that you're putting in anyway. So it's like, you know, you have these two cups, right? One of them, let's say, for instance, your muscle tissue uh, is very insulin sensitive and you fill that up and then you fill up muscle tissue. That's a bad place for you to be in, right? If you get to that point where now you're insulin resistant, I would say you need to either A, pull some carbohydrates out, keep your blood sugar stable, you know, and kind of maybe even implement mini cuts predominantly maybe every couple months or so just to keep them sensitive so that you can make sure that their bodies are actually metabolizing the glucose and using the glucose that, that you're putting in. I like that. I think that's important. And I think it's, it just goes to show like online calculators, just they're not going to do you justice. So going off of numbers that you find inside right. of some equation, isn't the end all be all like, yes, they can give you direction or maybe an insight of where you should hypothetically work your reverse diet towards. But I, I don't think any calculator is going to do true, true justice to who you are as an individual and all the factors that go into that. Um, Chris, do you have anything to add to what Will said or do you pretty much follow what he says? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, the only thing I can, can add is don't be afraid to add in protein as you're reverse dieting as well. Mm. So a lot of people are just pushing carbs, carbs, carbs. They might increase fats every once in a while and they never push their protein. So what, what ends up happening is they're getting more, they're getting more and more protein coming from the fat and carbohydrate sources they're consuming as trace proteins. So they're not high in the essential amino acids. So their actual protein quality starts to drop. So total quantity stays the same across the board, but quality is decreasing throughout their, their reverse diet or improvement season, whatever it may be. And that negatively impacts their recovery and protein synthesis response and stuff like that. So if your carbs are getting higher and higher, you need to increase protein as well to kind of offset um, how much protein is coming from trace proteins from the carbohydrate source and how much is actually coming from a true protein source. Um, so yeah, one last thing I'll say is, let's just say you were eating six ounces of meat four times per day to hit your protein goal. As you reverse diet and you start increasing your carbs, if you're now eating like 4.5 ounces of meat, but you're still hitting the same total protein, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like you should keep your protein the same and, and actually increase the total quantity as the carbs and fat come up. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I'm glad that you added that piece in. Um, as we kind of have covered a little bit of periodization, a lot of reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation, 
Um, let's get into die breaks and refeeds. And Chris, I'll let you start with this one. But I guess you, I, I think most listeners understand what a diet break and a refeed is. Typically, a refeed is going to be one, maybe two days of just higher calories, bringing you up to maintenance via carbohydrates, typically. Um, diet breaks, I would classify as probably, I mean, I guess you could call it two day in a row, a diet break, but more likely it's like 72 hours or more, right? Um, when and how and why? Like, why are you implementing these? When are you implementing these? Um, and how are you doing so? I know some people like to, and, and I've posted a lot of infographics and it'll say like, you know, three weeks on, take you know, three to six days of diet break, so on and so forth. And people get really sucked into the numbers and they're like, they'll message me like, so is that the best approach you follow? Like you always have them in a deficit for this long. I'm like, well, no, it completely changes. A lot of times I'm randomly throwing refeeds and diet breaks at them because I, I give them to them when I feel necessary. Sure. Um, sometimes for the analytical individual who's not necessarily getting on stage, they really like planning. And I'll be like, okay, we'll do them this often because you really like to plan ahead and know when you're doing this. And um, coordinate with your family or whatever it may be. Uh, but I'm just curious on your thoughts of, of basically when and how to add diet breaks and refeeds in. Sure. So um, again, utilizing refeeds and diet breaks kind of have a difference. I would say a refeed would be um, an acute, an acute response or an acute reason to uh, refill muscle glycogen, um, get some sort of performance benefits and also have maybe one to two days where the athlete is looking forward to just higher calories and higher carbohydrates so they can continue to adhere to the plan, right? Um, that is going to be very beneficial, like I mentioned, for performance to refill muscle glycogen. It's going to improve their look. So if they're a physique athlete, they can kind of better gauge how much progress they actually made. Um, it can help them reduce some water retention and just give them a better snapshot of what they truly look like. Because if you're constantly flat and you're a physique athlete, you can lose motivation pretty quick. So having a one to two day refeed is, is pretty important, um, but it needs to be timed correctly and the timeline of when they need to be contest lean needs to be taken into consideration. Um, a diet break would more so be to um, kind of get their metabolic rate a little bit higher, start increasing leptin levels. And again, you're obviously going to refill um, muscle glycogen, you're going to have performance benefits, you're going to reduce stress to a greater extent, because you know, it's a longer period of time where you're eating at maintenance, or at a slight surplus, and it's going to serve this physique very well. Um, that can be utilized if you start to stagnate with your fat loss. Um, if stress is just really high at some point, or you've just been in a deficit for, you know, call it 12 consecutive weeks, and it's probably a good time to implement that diet break so you, continue, so you can continue to progress moving forward. Um, the last thing I'll say is I used to do uh, one-day refeeds uh, a lot in, in previous years, but right now I basically always do a 48-hour refeed as my minimum. Um, and the reason for that is because what I realized happens is if you give someone just one day of carbo uh, higher carb carbohydrates and one refeed day, um, although it can do a decent job at refilling muscle glycogen, depending on how aggressive you are, it ramps up hunger so much the following day that it makes it harder for them to adhere to their previous calorie intake uh, the following day where I've been doing two-day refeeds almost all the time where it's like a very high-carb day and then a moderate day and they get back to their diet. Because if you just do 24 hours, it really seems like 
hunger just increases tenfold and they're like, crap, I kind of wish I never took the refeed because I wasn't this hungry before it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, one thing I will kind of add in there as somebody who works with primarily general pop, um, when you are talking about uh, seeing actual physiological changes from doing 48 hours or more because people are getting contest lean, so on and so forth. Like I want people in the general pop to know that it does apply to you as well. You might not need them as regularly, uh, but you're still having some metabolic adaptations and it's still going to help you in the long run, reach your goal without as much, I don't like to say the word damage, but it's the easiest thing to say right now, like as much damage along the way. Um, And I think it's important. I use a lot of two and three day refeeds uh, or diet breaks with a lot of my clients. And then there's also merit too. Like I have a guy getting on stage next weekend, but he also has a show in August. Um, he's already ready. And I gave him a refeed at the beginning of last week and it was just one day. And he was like asking me, cause, cause he's a coach himself and he was kind of asking me the reasoning. I was like, honestly, dude, like you're on your update, you're craving shit like crazy. And I wanted to see how you look two days after a refeed. And you looked way better two days compared to the last time we did a two day refeed with one day after two day after three day after. And I think that's important for people listening to that are more into the aesthetic side of things, doing a one day refeed and seeing how you look day of, day after, two days after, three days after, two-day refeed, same thing, um, because you can gauge for photo shoots and competition way better because when are you going to carve up before the show? And I'm not like the physique uh, competition expert, but I do prep some people, and that's something that has helped me quite a bit just to gauge like when we should actually utilize these things on their peak week. But, um, Will, I'll pass it to you as far as implementing these diet breaks and when and how. All right, so – I do agree with the both of you guys. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that um, utilizing refeeds and diet breaks, um, Chris pretty much already covered like what a refeed is, how he utilized them. Um, You talked a bit about diet breaks. I'll go ahead and talk a bit about diet breaks as they kind of resort to the general population and tell you guys like a case study that I've currently kind of worked on as well. Um, So a diet break, in my opinion, is roughly I'd say anywhere from four, five, six, seven days, potentially sometimes all the way up to two weeks of eating at caloric maintenance level at the time you have implemented the break, right? Now, how this is very helpful is that oftentimes, right, when we think about we're going into fat loss, most people don't understand that physiologically fat loss in and of itself is a stressor. Now, if you stack that on top of doing extra cardio, you stack that on top of doing excessive amounts of training, then you find yourself in a place where you have a highly stressed system. You have inflammation in your joints and you're just finding it very hard to be able to both psychologically and physiologically recover from that. Now a diet break, in my opinion, um, again, is something that a, you can psychologically look forward to, But B, what it more so is for a lot of general population individuals is an educational tool that actually teaches them how to preserve the weight they have lost with a higher amount of calories. So let me go ahead and reiterate on that a bit because I have currently right now, I have a client, her name's Lorena. Um, She started with me, she was about 285 pounds. Um, Right now she's down to, I believe she's around 145 pounds. And what we had to do was we had to talk about diet breaks and how we're going to preserve the weight loss before we even started the fat loss phase. Because in her mind, she had already lost 100 pounds before on her own and gained it all back. 
So how do you approach something like that? What she did before, and obviously I took extensive like notes on our conversation, and she told me that you know the previous diet that she did, there was no plan of action on how she was going to recover from losing 100 pounds. Imagine how much stress is on your body physiologically and psychologically if you lose 100 pounds. There was no plan of action on how she was going to be able to preserve that weight loss. So in my mind, I'm like, that's the first thing we have to be able to talk about. We schedule a call just like this on Zoom. We go over what a diet break is and how I'm actually going to teach her how to utilize them for herself. It was roughly about, uh, I'd say, three months into my relationship and working with Lorena that the uh, Matador study actually came out. And, you know, in the Matador study, they utilized two weeks on, two weeks off, right? Two weeks in a caloric deficit and then two weeks to actually recover from that deficit. I didn't necessarily think at the time that you know, utilizing a two weeks and two weeks was going to be ideal. So I basically took the literature and I manipulated it. I said, all right, Lorena, what we're going to do is we're going to go into two weeks, two potentially three weeks in a caloric deficit, and then we're going to provide you one to two weeks in a diet break phase. And she was like, okay, coach, not a problem at all. So she goes ahead, she commits, her weight's fallen off. With every fat loss push, we recover from that push, right? So she drops 10, 15 pounds, we recover. She drops another 10 pounds, we recover. She drops another 10 pounds, she recovers. And every single time that she recovered, what I was trying to hone in on, what I was trying to teach her was that every single time we increased her calories by sometimes it'd be four to 500 above what she was in fat loss on, she was preserving her weight. So a very magical thing happened towards the end of this. And after she had lost 100 pounds, now she's down, it was like 135 pounds or 140 pounds she had lost in total, was that at the end of the fat loss phase, she actually started calling her own shots. Right? Is it time for a diet break again, coach? I know exactly what to do. Here are my macros. I'm like, beautiful, right? I'm like, this is amazing because what you've learned along this entire process is how to preserve your weight. So every single time she lost an additional 10 pounds, she learned how to preserve that 10 pound drop. So, as an example, she started out 285, get her down to 250, she knows how to preserve 250, got her down to 220, she knows how to preserve 220 down to 200, she knows how to preserve 200, and then through the 100s all the way down to where we are now, which is having her at a place where her calories are about five to 600 calories over as low and as, as aggressive as we had to get to get her to her goal weight of 145. So in, in essence, a diet break basically is utilized to be able to recover your client from the stress that fat loss has on them. I love that, man. I'm glad you went into a case study just like uh, Chris did with the reverse diet because I think it just puts things into practical application for people that can understand how to do it. Um, and I also like the way you manipulated the Matador study because I've found myself doing that quite a bit. And I have personally found kind of like a three to one or a three to two ratio of like dieting to uh, diet break, I think is really key. And then after the entire diet phase is over, maybe taking a much longer period of, at maintenance just to recover from the total fat loss phase, but putting it into actual system and how you use it as a method, I think is really valuable for the clients. And um, that's huge, man. I think this, this turned out really well, guys. We're going we're gonna to cap it at that because I know we're running on like hour and a half already, but um, overall, you guys crushed it. Like I think the, the beauty of this stuff is, is that we're all in agreement on so many topics. We all kind of find the middle ground. None of us are dogmatic. Um, and we have real life experience. And that's what I really love about this. I love the research. I love diving into nerdy stuff. But I think 
bringing that nerdy stuff down to a level where everybody listening can apply it to themselves is so powerful. So um, I'll leave you guys each with the last statement before we close out um, and make sure you mention like where to find you obviously so people can go follow you, check out your site, do all those things. But Will, do you have anything to leave the listeners with? And then of course, drop your, your handle so they can follow you. Yeah, sure. Um, I would just say that for those of you who are out there, those of you who are struggling, those of you who have these types of problems, whether it be metabolic adaptation, you know, you find yourself in your plateaued with fat loss. The reality is that the information that you need to be able to finally gain control of your metabolism for the rest of your life, it's available, but it's through listening to people like myself, Chris, Cody and other people that are within our space who are actually up to date with the latest and greatest new, uh, evidence-based nutritional practices that we have available. And by listening to people like us, potentially even reaching out to us, you're going to find that there is a method that can help you finally gain control of your metabolism for the rest of your life. If you're in a position right now where you're suffering, maybe you don't want to reach out, that's kind of like a self-sabotaging thing. We are only here. We are not here to judge. We are not here to criticize. We are here to help. Um, again, my name is William Grazione. I own Metabolic Evolution Incorporated. Um, you can find me on Instagram at William underscore Grazione. You can find me on YouTube, William Grazione. Uh, Facebook, William Grazione. My website, metabolicevolution.com. And uh, I appreciate everybody for checking out the podcast. Hell yeah, man. I love that, that last little bit that you mentioned there because I agree with it all. And, and I'm going to make sure to link everything um, in the show notes. So if you guys want to check out Will's stuff, just drop down in the description. Chris? For sure. Well, Cody, thanks for having me on, man. Well, it's always a pleasure catching up, brother, and I'll see you tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, uh, all in all, if you guys need to reach me, you can find me at competitivebreed.com. Um, you can also reach out to me on Instagram, where it's the, the platform I utilize the most for just educational content. So that'll be uh, at Christopher.Barricat. And if you have any questions at all, just feel free to reach out uh, through either platform. And I look forward to connecting with you all. Thank you guys for tuning in, and I hope you learned a ton throughout this podcast. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.